You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Hargens. Hello, all of you fine people out in podcast land. Hopefully you're doing great this day and age because, uh, you know, I think we all need a little help now, right? We're in that weird in-between state of the world somewhat looking like normal, but then also not looking like it. I don't know, man. It's so confusing. But what's not confusing, great transition, right? Professional, true professional here, (laughs) is our guest this week, and his name is Justin Fornoff. He plays in a band called Wrist Meets Razor, who uh, is a really cool blend of like screamo, modern metalcore, a lot of different stuff going on. And uh, I got keyed into them a couple years ago. They actually just released, uh, you know, a new full length on Prosthetic Records. That's uh, really good. It's very progressive, I would call it, uh, because they're trying to push the boundaries of what people kind of not only think about those different music genres that I mentioned previously, but then uh, they also are working with a previous guest of the show, Isaac Hale from Knocked Loose. He did a lot of production on this uh, particular record. And so it's it's really good. I encourage you to check it out. But uh, Justin was a great chat. Uh, he lives in Las Vegas, and this band is really interesting because they're all spread across the country. Um, yeah, anyways, like but more on him in a moment. But you know we got to talk about some some other things, like emailing the show. You can always email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. You can always leave a review on Apple Podcasts. I would greatly appreciate it because it helps the exposure of the show. I know as weird as that sounds, it's the truth. And that's why obviously every podcaster on the entire planet asks you to do that. And um, also, I just appreciate you downloading this thing. Like, I really, really, I view like every download as like a victory. It's like, you know, selling a shirt at a show. It really feels like that because, uh, you know, even though this is free for you to consume and you don't need to spend your time doing this, you do. And you keep coming back week after week. And I really appreciate that because the show is closing in on our nine year anniversary, which is an incredible thing to say. And I'm, I've just, I'm floored that this thing has lasted as long as it has, and it has created enough value in people's lives to be able to, you know, deem this as like, yes, this is worth my time. So I'm just, yeah, feeling very grateful from that perspective. But anyways, uh, Justin, like I said, plays in Wrist Meets Razor, lives in Vegas, great dude. I just was, uh, yeah, I, I was intrigued by this band. And then when the opportunity came up to speak to him via, you know, their their PR person, Mike he was like, hey, just check out the record and listen to this. Tell me what you think. And so I did, and I kind of went back and forth with it, being like, I like some of it. I don't like some of it. But then ultimately landed on the side of liking it. And then, uh, yeah, Justin, he's just been doing a lot of cool work and putting on shows in Las Vegas. And um, I have a large affinity for that music scene in general. So, yeah, we did it. And that's what you were going to listen to right now. So uh, check out a little bit of Wrist Meets Razor and then listen to the conversation with Justin. Before I knew that you were, you know, obviously involved with the band, uh, Wrist Meets Razor definitely came on my radar probably, I would say, uh, 20, I don't know, 16 or so. And it was one of those, yeah, it was one of those things where I remember, um, 
obviously during that time, it was kind of like the, you know, whatever. I, I don't even, I can't keep track of the waves of Screamo, you know, like, but it was, it was, it was post scrams, I guess you would call it. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think that's a, I think that's an accurate way to describe it for sure. I, right. That's how we saw it too. It was more so that we were like throwing in all these other influences, but we liked, I liked the Screamo thing and Jonah like, started the band he's the guitar player he really liked the screamo thing and so it was it was something that made a lot of sense and then as it progressed we were just like but we also came from like metalcore background so that was mostly where our hearts were musically so it it made a very natural progression to metalcore but we were all into it in the beginning for sure yeah and i think why i frankly started to pay attention to the music that you guys were creating was because you were putting out more than what a bit because like i mean realistically because this is your second full length am i correct in that assumption or yeah you, no, most bands of this ilk don't last that long you know it's like <laughs> and so yeah i i think i was kind of like forced to reckon with the band where i was like oh yeah i like what they do but it, it's weird and i'm sure you feel this attachment of like do i devote enough sort of emotional attention towards a band that's just going to like dissipate and, you know, put out three songs and then that's it. Like, you know, I, I, and so I I think because you guys lasted longer, there was this idea that like, yes, I can invest my time in this band. I don't know if that kind of resonates with you or makes sense to you at all. It totally does. Well, you know, what's interesting about that too, is it's almost a double-edged sword in um, more of the underground kind of screamo and metalcore circles too, where everyone wants to attach themselves to something that's mysterious and, and doesn't really ever present itself as, you know, a whole idea. So there's almost more intrigue in being a band that's not a real band than there is in being a band that's going to tour and do a lot of stuff. And I think we've had to reckon with both sides of that, where we started as a band that would put out merch and it would sell out instantly because we were just so mysterious. We didn't tour, we didn't play shows. And then when we started touring and playing shows, we still could sell merch as quick as we, as we used to, but there was a different vibe as to why people were buying, if that makes sense. Like our, the intrigue into this band became more about, who we were and who the band is and who, how the, who the music or how the music kind of uh, makes people feel uh, as opposed to just being this mysterious uh, merch item thing, you know, this exclusive thing that no one else can get or understand. And I, I, I like, I, as much as I love that and I think that that's, uh, has its own place and it's very cool. I, uh, I, I, like it better the way it is now. And I know the rest of the guys kind of feel the same way. Like we, we had our time as the mysterious band. Right. <laughs> no, that's really interesting. Cause I never, I appreciate you articulating that. Cause I, I, I guess I never considered it from that sort of flip side where the idea yeah. of being a quote unquote real band, like, you know, even looking at bands in the genre of music, you know, whatever orchid reversal of man and all those bands, like, I I mean, as I was watching those bands come up and, you know, you were watching those bands too, like you felt like they were real because they were putting out a lot of music. And I think the that push and pull of that scene of what exactly what you're talking about of like, you know, we make ourselves scarce because like we're, you know, like, not like it's this calculated business plan, but that's just like what you kind of did because of the circumstances that you were in. But then the moment you become a quote unquote real band, people are just like, ah, whatever. I don't care about them anymore. It's so weird. Yeah, no, it it's uh 
It's a very unique thing too. I think, you know, when you get into like some of the underground genres, like black metal is a genre, that's the exact same way where it's like, if you invest yourself in it too much, people are not going to like it anymore. And Screamo kind of has that general vibe too, which is I think another reason why at least Jonah and I, from the start, we're like, yeah, you know, we really like Screamo, but I think the idea is going to be to push this further because the Screamo thing only goes so far. And, and, you know, we've gotten a lot of flack for it too. It's not really necessarily something that we were just, we just skated by with and no one ever let us hear about. We uh, definitely didn't make too many friends in the Screamo scene when we started doing other stuff. I will say that. Right, right. That's very interesting. Uh, We'll pull on those threads a little bit later, but um, you yourself, were you actually born and raised in Vegas or did you, like, where did you end up? Uh, So I'm a, I'm a military brat. My dad was in the air force and we, uh, we traveled a lot and uh, this is, it ended up being where we, we settled at in uh, 99. But before that I lived pretty much everywhere, (laughs) all over. Right. You were, yeah, you're the, the nomad. You were the kid that was being included in all of these things and you never had time to make any friends anywhere, I'm sure. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Um, and so, I mean, Vegas, most people wouldn't typically connect that to, you know, being a military town. Um, but it is, I mean, the, the, the connective tissue is there. Um, so is it one of those things that people are perplexed that you, I guess, you know, ended up in Vegas where it's like, really, you live in Vegas? Like what, why or whatever, like how does that transpire? Uh, you know, I think for a while it was like that and it kind of goes in and out of being like that. Um, like in the beginning, when I very first moved here, when I was younger, it was like that definitely, but Vegas has become a very fast growing city. So I, I never really get that anymore because so many people, everyone seems to know somebody that lives in Vegas, if that makes sense. Like everyone has a friend or a relative that has moved to Vegas at some point. So now it's not so much of a question, but I do, I do remember in uh, like middle school when, when we very first moved here, um, people that I had met in the past asking like, where do you live in Vegas? Like, I didn't even know that they had houses there. Like, do you live in a casino? Like, where do you live? It was totally. ridiculous. <laughs> I, I never get that anymore, but there, it did used to be ridiculous. Right. It um, is It is funny when people, yeah, just think of the strip and they don't think of the fact that there are humans that like live in houses outside of that. It's like, not everybody lives in hotels. Like, come on. <laughs> yeah, no, it's... I'm not really entirely sure where the mindset from that even comes from, but uh, it, it was interesting. And Vegas as a music scene has also been its own kind of thing because for a while, and I'm sure you can like attest to this from playing in Vegas, like in the mid 2000s, it was more or less a thing where it's like, you guys do like DIY shows there. Like, where do you do them at on the strip? Like how, where are you playing at? Like, it's one of those things where people can't even really fathom that there is a life outside of, you know, the, the corporate kind of confines of, you know, downtown Las Vegas and the strip. Yeah, no, absolutely. It definitely is a very, and I think that there's that connective tissue with Vegas being such a transient population sort of in general, because, you know, people, a lot of people move from all over the world to descend on Vegas, whether it's, you know, professionally or the fact that retiring there or whatever. And I, I think that's why that all ages scene in general has always been difficult to maintain because you have this, you know, nature of turnover in that city every, you know, five to seven years or whatever. I mean, you, you know, that from a real experience and, you know, going to shows and then promoting shows there. 
Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a very difficult city to promote shows in, but and, and a lot of reason for that is uh, because it's also a, a city that doesn't want all ages shows, like on a on a like a, a level that's bigger than just you know a hardcore show or a punk show or whatever it may, might be. They don't want all ages shows because it doesn't drive any kind of alcohol business and it doesn't drive the business of the strip. So it's not of any interest to them. And all it would really do is keep people away from alcohol selling establishments and um, establishments like uh, major casinos or anything that would bring in actual revenue to the to the city or actual tourism money to the city. So they don't like all ages venues and they put up a lot of uh, a lot of brick walls in front of what you would need to get done in order to do all ages shows. And so we, we run up against those all the time, but also, I mean, it's kind of hard to exactly articulate it, but we are still the wild west and we kind of act like that as well. When we need to get stuff done, it's not necessarily by the book. Yeah, it's it's very true. I I do have a distinct memory. I like because people like you were saying always joke. We're like, "Oh, you play shows in the strip," and I definitely remember one time taking playing at. Uh, remember they had ga- the GameWorks on the strip. It yeah, was like, of course. <laughs> and they did shows there for a hot minute, and I remember. Yeah. yeah, I remember playing there, and I didn't necessarily. I mean, we'll always play Vegas, and it was really fun. But I just remember being so excited because they gave us like free game passes for that night, so we just play. Just play <laughs> the video games i was like you guys are needing to pay us like this is sick yeah that's so cool yeah they uh you know they tried a couple different spots on the strip they tried a spot in downtown las vegas called jillian's for a while which was uh, that's right that's right it was also an area that had like games and stuff and it was like a, a hangout spot but none of those places could last because of alcohol laws and then just the nature of doing really violent shows in areas where there's lots of tourism, naturally they're not going to want to keep that around. And that just basically was what it was. A lot of the times when it comes to, you know, this kind of thing, especially when it's hardcore related, uh, I think it's always better away from stuff like that. But I mean, you look at a venue like the house of blues in uh, Mandalay Bay and that's been going for what, 30 years now. 40 years now, Uh, 40, probably more like 30 years now. Like it's been going a a long time and it's not really missing anything, like not missing a beat. So you never know. But I mean, I, I, I do think when it comes to like stuff that does kind of smaller stuff, stuff that might be more on like kind of our level or on the level of the scenes that we come from, um, it's a little bit less accessible and a little bit harder for them to keep around. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So as you were kind of, you know, growing up and, and, you know, being in Vegas and developing your identity and everything like that, um, what did you kind of find yourself gravitating towards? Like, you know, were you into sports? Were you into reading art? Like, you know, how did that all kind of manifest itself? Well, when I was growing up, I, um, you know, I, I tried to get into things like sports when I was really young. Um, and that never really panned out. And so I, I, uh, immediately got into music and stuff. I mean, naturally, like traveling a lot. I was basically a loner whenever I'd moved to new cities because I didn't have any friends. I would always be starting over. So I uh, I really was into music and uh, just kind of grew from there, to be honest with you. I, I, I was into a lot, of, a lot of new metal stuff and then a lot of metal stuff and then a lot of hardcore stuff. And uh, uh, I've been straight edge for about 20 years now. 
starting this year. Um, so it's uh, kind of been a natural progression, but then I settled into who I was and wanted to do kind of more of the music thing. And so that's been the goal, really. It's always been the, the end goal for me. That's awesome. And do you have any uh, siblings? I do. I have, I have one brother who also kind of went through a lot of the same motions, but he joined, uh, he joined the air force as well. So he, he followed in the footsteps of my uh, dad and uh, I was the black sheep naturally. Right. <laughs> yeah. You were the, uh, Oh, you're not going to go into the military. Like that doesn't make sense. <laughs> I think they, uh, you, you know, I think they uh, understood after a while that I wasn't going to do it. I was just too weird. I was, the, I was just too weird to do whatever that was going to be. So sure. It's like, uh, yeah, Justin is not going to make it past basic training. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, it's funny is I, I think, I think about it sometimes and it's, it's definitely, you know, in my blood still to be, uh, you know, more of a leader, but I, I don't think that it was something that I wanted to do as far as like, the military. I, I definitely cut in a different direction, but have a lot of the same traits, if that makes sense. Sure. I mean, especially when that's the environment and you see the positive aspects of it, of the, you know, the routine and discipline and all the things that are positive. So you're going to naturally be attracted to that because you're like, oh, like I'm familiar with that, that, that structure or whatever. Right. Right. And I think it's, 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 maybe it's even a little bit more than that. Maybe it's more just about getting things done and not really being afraid to, uh, take chances that you might not necessarily, uh, you might not necessarily see as conventional because a lot of, a lot of the, of what I, you know, saw growing up was through my father and what he strived to do. And, and he was always very, uh, very much about, uh, self-reliance and, and, uh, creating your own own paths in life and figuring out stuff like that. But then he did it through the avenue of, of the military naturally. So it was a little different, but I, I do see it in similar ways and, and do think that, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of willing to existence that you can do and a lot of uh, creating stuff that you can, you can forge just through your own will. Band merch. You know what I'm going to talk about, right? And if you don't, then you don't listen to this show regularly. But that's okay. We're here to remind you about Rockabilia.com. Rockabilia.com, you can go there and find all of the band merch that your little heart desires. And you can use this code, 100 words or less. That gets you 10% off the order, and you will be an extremely happy individual once you do that. Because let me tell you, they are releasing some absolutely fire pieces of merchandise. And I know that's like old guy trying to talk like young kid sort of scenario there, but trust me, you will find some great merch. Like they're actually doing this really cool partnership with uh Soundgarden where they're releasing some of their old like tour merch. I don't know. It's just so cool. I love what Rockabilly does. They have an inventive ideas. It's all officially licensed stuff. So the bands get paid. None of this horrible bootleg stuff, which let's be honest, there's a lot of it out there. And Rockabilia makes sure that this stuff is taken care of for you quickly, efficiently. Customer service is off the charts. I can't say enough positive things about Rockabilia, but every week in these ad reads, I will try to. And I will pontificate for minutes at a time about why Rockabilia is the only place that you should be ordering merch. So anyways, you get it. But you'll really get it when you go to rockabilia.com and use the promo code 100 words or less, and you will be a happy, happy individual. So thank you, Rockabilia, and go have fun and buy some merch.
So once you started to gravitate towards music, what was kind of your entry point to the, you know, independent side of things? Like, I'm going to kind of presume that, you know, the, the traditional path of kind of, you know, like, oh, here's like radio stuff and Nirvana, Green Day or whatever, and then kind of going down the road. Or did you have a more, I guess, unconventional approach to, you know, diving down the rabbit hole? Well, I mean, I guess it was a little unconventional in that I didn't really, because I traveled so much or because my family traveled so much, I didn't really have, you know, someone that showed me the way, if that makes sense. Like it, I got into music through myself and through it being something that just, I just, I just found me. Like it was almost like we found, like I found music and it found me at the same time. And so like I, uh, naturally I got into it through the the radio stuff, but it, it very quickly evolved because I just like music so much. And I kind of had that personality where when I really like something, I, I put everything in my being into it. And so I would get into different bands and then I'd go on the internet in the very early days of the internet. So this was like 2000 or so I would go on like, I can't even remember like CD now and different like websites where it was just like, you could buy CDs, but you could also just like look up stuff and see things that were recommended that other people bought and that didn't exist anywhere at the time. So that's what I would do. I do that. And then I download stuff on Napster, which would usually be like a song or so. And, uh, I'd get into tons of new music that way. And it started with the radio stuff, but it just progressed really quickly after like a year or two, I was already into like death metal and black metal and stuff. And then after like another year, I I got really into hardcore and that's kind of, that was kind of where I, uh, where I um, found my my most uh, interest is was in hardcore, but it it wasn't exactly hardcore. I guess in order to uh, properly flesh this out, I, and it's hard hard to say because it, this is part of the reason why I liked Taken so much. Is at that era in the early two thousands, there was it was a very broad stroke, and you really could like multiple different uh subgenres of hardcore and things that were adjacent to hardcore and it wasn't weird so for me stuff that was like chaotic metalcore stuff and stuff that was like original screamo stuff and then stuff that was a little bit more melodic metalcore-ish and then stuff that was just straight up hardcore all of that existed in the same realm in my mind like it all was on the same mix cds they were all together it wasn't really all that separate to me And it didn't really become separate to me for years, honestly. And I I think you did hit the nail on the head with that late 90s, early 2000s shift where kids that were getting into all of these different subgenres of music, you felt a little bit more... um, for lack of a better term, freedom to explore this stuff, uh, whether it was like actually going to shows uh, or whether it was just consuming the music online and stuff, you really you know, wanted to throw everything into a blender, not only from your music taste, but then in some attempt to create music that you were like, all right, maybe I'm going to, I want to sound like strife meets unbroken meets, um, you know, like, yeah, orchid or whatever. And people are just like, what? Like, why why would you do all that? (laughs) Well, and it's, I think it was interesting too. And at that time I was, I, I felt really driven by it, but like, Things like, for example, like the OC scene and how it was so varied between the metalcore and the hardcore stuff. And then things like Hellfest and how it was literally, you know, a hodgepodge of so many different bands. It felt 
really natural to also like all that different stuff because it was it was playing shows together already like they were already naturally matched so then to mix those sounds into one band that also felt very natural to me too and the first things that i ever did musically were always like a mixture of three different bands that probably didn't sound very similar and that kids today or even adults today wouldn't even recognize as being things that you could mix you know yeah absolutely it was just trying to i mean no matter what you are trying to rip off the bands that came before you but where the interesting component comes into play is being like how disparate of the influences that you say you're going to try to combine and then how that usually comes out obviously usually worse than the previous bands, but then you're like, oh, well, there's this little bit of a tweak that I can do that, you know, really articulates what I am trying to uh, attempt to do, even though it might not be the original intention of (laughs) why I was creating that music. Right, right. No, I I agree completely. And then, uh, and then, you know, the, the, the kind of low key, you know, common thread between everything that I really liked growing up and then all the things that I liked now were a lot of the aesthetics and I've always been really into kind of the, you know, the darker goth aesthetics. And so the bands that did that were always my absolute favorites. Those were always the ones that I thought were doing something that I really could relate to in a big way. So then when it came to stuff like, you know, like Hemsa or like, you know, the uh, early 18 vision stuff or bleeding, even the early bleeding through stuff. Like I really gravitated to that the quickest because it, it really spoke to me in a way that I, I thought that a lot of the other bands didn't necessarily like that. Like I always liked the, the other bands as well, but I, you know, when you see a band and it has the full kind of package going on and the look and everything, I mean, it just, it hits a different, a different chord in you, you know? Oh, absolutely. For sure. Because you're seeing these influences that, you know, uh, are, are, you don't know how to really, put it into a blender. But then when you see another band do it, that's kind of like adjacent to what you have in your head. You're like, Oh, that's, that's what I'm trying to key into. Like, it's just, it's exciting. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, And and so uh, I'm going to presume that you started to like, did you, I guess, gravitate towards, you know, guitar first or drums or like, how did your, you know, musical journey transpire there? So my musical journey has been kind of an interesting one. So when I very first, very first started getting into music and it was mostly like, it was mostly like industrial metal, new metal stuff. I only wanted to sing. That was the only thing I wanted to do was be the vocalist. Um, And then that kind of progressed to the point where I was like, well, you know, not, I mean, it's hard to find a band that's already fully formed that wants a vocalist. Like that's not even a, even in the early 2000s and like late 90s, that was not an easy goal at all. So I got to the point where I was like, all right, well, I got to play something. So I uh, started playing bass. I got a bass when I was 13, I think, for Christmas. And then I just played that nonstop like every day. I would just I would just uh, listen to songs. I would like I, what I would do is I would like pull up songs on my computer. I'd pull up like at the gate songs, for example. And then I would try to mimic the speed that they played as quickly as best as I could. And then also learn, you know, the notes, even though I didn't know the notes. So I was just kind of mimic, you know, the, the gestures that you would do. Um, and that's essentially how I learned how to play bass. But I, I, uh, I realized that that was a better, 
a better entry point into uh, being in bands than just being a vocalist. So, but naturally, obviously, it it uh, came together too. So, as you were starting to get into this, how did your parents react to you know you bringing all of this? What ostensibly was probably really really weird music to them. Yeah, they didn't understand at all, and they you know it took a very long time for them to even begin to understand uh, where I was coming from with any of it. They they. My parents grew up listening to rock music, so it wasn't really like something that like a shock on that sense. Like they weren't so traditional that they never listened to anything guitar driven, but they didn't understand the '90s thing at all. Like they didn't understand any of the trends of the '90s, and so they really didn't understand anything that I was into. Um, they've grown to they've grown to love it, but they didn't originally, for sure. Sure, and was it? Um was it one of those things like even though you were like you mentioned you know you've been straight edge for a while did did that i guess help you be able to go to shows where your parents knew okay justin's not gonna like you know come home or you know get arrested or i mean yes he may get arrested because he's doing something else stupid but just not (laughs) not because you're uh, drinking or whatever uh you know i'm not sure i'm not sure if that did help or not i will say this and i i'm not sure if uh i mean if any of your listeners are from the Utah, Nevada, Arizona area, they'll definitely be able to understand what I'm where I'm going with this next part. But uh, being straight edge wasn't a positive thing, <laughs> if that makes sense. It is a it is a movement based on on uh, positivity to those that are maybe outside of the the know, because it's it's basically what a lot of people would assume is kind of like this Puritan lifestyle of, you know, of, of purity. But, uh, in my state, it's, uh, it's a gang (laughs) being a straight, being straight edge is a gang and they would uh, harass us at school all the time. Uh, my friends would get pulled over when they were driving home because they had straight edge stickers on their car and they'd get, you know, frisked by the cops and gang profiled and we'd go to shows. They'd, they take pictures of us and shit like that. Like it, it was, uh, yeah, I, I think my parents were concerned to be honest with you. I think they probably would have preferred me doing other stuff just cause then they would have known I wasn't gang related. But I think, I, I think, you know, naturally I, it's probably a double edged sword. I can't really speak for them, but it's an, you know, it's both, but in, uh, I know at least in Nevada and definitely in Utah. And I think in Arizona, straight edge is a, uh, an actual gang, which you can uh, be profiled for and arrested in RICO cases for and all kinds of stuff. So, (laughs) No, it's true. I mean, especially in those areas and obviously in the mid and late 90s as that whole scene was evolving where you had these two factions of, you know, kid, quote unquote, normal kids who were straight edge that were not part of that, but then got sucked up in it because of exactly what you're talking about, where it's like, oh, yes, these certain cities literally have to define these kids as a gang because they're, you know, wreaking havoc or whatever. So, yeah, it does. You kind of drafting off the fumes of that, and especially like you said, yeah, Reno and Salt Lake City were notoriously violent scenes. So, Well, and uh in the early 2000s, it still was pretty violent. I mean, at least in my experience, it was still very violent. We still got into lots of fights based on being straight edge, and there still was an expectation um, that you would fight 
or potentially die for being straight edge as well. I, I know it's not like that anymore, but it really, it felt like that at the time. It's hard to put into words that I think people would be able to relate to, but that is how it was. Right. Yeah, exactly. There was a, there was a moment in time where that existed in the same way that, uh, you know, the, uh, the direct action, you know, animal rights movement in the mid nineties. Right. Same and, thing. and that was going on too in the early two thousands as well. That was when I, I first started being vegan. So. Yeah. You're, you're just attracted to all of these, uh, you know, like, Hey, this is, uh, you know, terrorism adjacent. I'm just kidding. Right. Well, like I, like I said, uh, the military thing kind of split with me. I didn't follow the traditional military. I, I'm a uh, vegan straight edge instead. That's what I like. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. You're like, I am a yeah, vegan straight edge lieutenant. So that's what yeah. you can call me. <laughs> um, so as you started to, you know, play in bands and uh, experience shows and kind of, you know, start to really soak up the, the scene as it were, um, you know, I'm going to guess that you obviously played in like, you know, completely terrible band. I mean, I, I use the word terrible, maybe, in words, but like, you know, bad, bad bands. Cause everybody has to play in that yeah. at the beginning. Yeah, um, yeah. So what was your first experiences like? So my first band was called, uh, X worth fighting for X. And we were, all, we were all, we were all straight edge. Uh, we played, we would play, uh, Arizona a lot because there were other straight edge bands there too. I think I was the only vegan one in that band, I believe. Um, but, uh, we were, we definitely had a bunch of straight edge songs and I was at a time where like shows were war zones essentially. So we, uh, we, we definitely did that whole thing. I, I mean, to, to be honest, I, my involvement in that band was so minimal. I just played bass and went to the shows and, you know, had fun and, uh, what did whatever hooligan things that we ended up doing, which was usually a lot of stuff, which we, I luckily never got arrested. Some of my other friends got arrested, but I never got arrested. So it worked out fine for me. Um, but yeah, honestly, my, my, uh, whole evolution playing music went very quickly. So I went from doing that to being in Molotov solution. It was really that quick. Um, and uh, from there, I uh, joined Folsom a couple of years after after all that dissolved with me being in that band. And then uh, done uh, a couple other local bands. But for the most part, Wrist Meat Razor came pretty shortly thereafter. And that's where that's where I've been. Right. And as you started to you know, get more involved with, because I mean, I know that you've been putting on shows for a while and I imagine that you've had some, you know, business implications with, uh, you know, all the bands that you previously played in. Were you immediately attracted to that or was that something that you kind of had to like work up to, to be like, oh yes, like I know what it's like booking a show and stuff like that. Well, that's, that's interesting too. I think that that also ties into the Las Vegas thing and, and what you were mentioning earlier and how hard it is to keep an all ages venue open here. Um, there aren't any, you know, and because there aren't any, it also, it also affects the, uh, the ability to do any show and to, to book any band anywhere. Like not most bands that aren't like really into the, to the subgenre aren't going to want to play, you know, a junkyard or a desert show or, you know, a house or something like that. So, um, there was a necessity for booking shows in Las Vegas and really like putting a lot of work into it because no one wanted to, because it was so difficult. You know, there was no, you got no payout on it. The shows, the places that we could do shows at were all really not accessible to most people. Like they were either very dangerous or they were, 
um, hard to get to, or, you know, like you can't bring kids to places like that. They don't want to go like young kids don't want to have their parents drop them off at a play at a, you know, at a house in the middle of the desert. Like they just don't, <laughs> that doesn't work usually. So, um, so I really wanted to focus on booking into venues that are, we're going to actually, you know, work on a bigger scale. And so my friend Dustin and I decided to really go in on that and start putting in a lot of work. Dustin booked at a venue called uh, Leathernecks, which did a similar thing in the mid 2000s in Vegas, where we were, we were booking stuff or he was booking stuff that was like going into a VFW hall, but it was big enough to be going into big venues in every other city. And so essentially we've kind of re re uh, introduced that to the city where we book stuff at halls, but we do professional sound and um, pre-sales and online ticketing and everything. Like it's, it's, it's a legit show, but it's also done in a way that's DIY. So we're still under the radar enough that we're, we can get away with, you know, certain things. Right. And I think that you hit the nail on the head in regards to the, uh, you know, whatever professionalization of something that is going to be able to hopefully be sustainable. Cause I do think that you do reach diminishing returns when you are, you know, using unconventional venues, like that's one thing and that's fine because that's the, the situation that you're presented. But if you do use an unconventional venue and are like, Hey, here's some things that kids can do that they can show to their parents that they're not going to be, you know, like dragged out to the middle of the desert and shot or whatever. <laughs> it's like, just that idea of, of being like, yes, we can do pre-sale tickets and you will show up and you know, you don't feel like you're coming to too sketchy of a place. Cause I think that that is where that's where you're going to stumble for a, um, you know, a, a more sustainable future for all ages shows, regardless of the, you know, the transient nature of venues. Yeah. And you know, we tried, we tried every, all these options before and they didn't work naturally. So there was a necessity to push it into a direction that was going to be sustainable if if only for just you know a little bit of time you know if only we could just buy a little bit of time before we could find the next possible venue but we've luckily um had some uh some consistency with the spots we book at and so typically when that happens especially in a city like Las Vegas you just ride that until tragedy strikes you know Right. Yeah. Just keep this going until someone says no. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, I mean, Risk Meets Razor is also really interesting because, you know, they're, uh, you are for sure not a conventional band because, you know, started as a one man project and then, you know, was able to I- enlist the help of, you know, friends around the country. Um, and because of that, that poses a lot of challenges in regards to not only recording and the way that bands typically quote unquote exist, um, thankfully the internet exists so you can, you know, produce this music, but, um, it, 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 so is it interesting to kind of exist in this band that is real, but then also, um, you know, real from the, the sense of you're putting out music and you exist, but then quote unquote, not real because there are these, um, you know, geographical implications to what you guys do. So is it, you know, kind of that like, well, or, or you like it because of these sort of constraints that you've placed upon yourselves. It's very unique because of those constraints. I think, I think it's very unlike any other band I've ever been a part of. And I'm sure it's very unlike any other band that any of, you know, any of us have been a part of. And I think, uh, 
it, it only is benefited by the fact that we don't have to constantly be inundated with, you know, things like band practices and like being pushed into like conventional band thing, like directions where it's like, well, do you guys want to play this local show or do we want to like, what do we want to do with like this little weekend thing around, you know, our city? We're, we're put into a position to where when we book things, we know that they're going to be worth our time. And so there's, it's easy to invest a lot of money and effort into something when you know it's going to be, you know, there as opposed to when it's kind of a casual thing and you can take or leave it, you know, whenever it's convenient for you. For this band, it's, I mean, it's never convenient for us and we do it because it's uh, what we want to do, you know? Right. It, it also it makes it more deliberate because you got, there is more planning and execution that has to take place as opposed to just the simple act of existing alongside of one another. Yeah, no, uh, it's very, very deliberate. Um, and it, and it gives us a sense of control too. There's a lot of control in being able to have a project like risk meat razor and, uh, have it be fully conceptualized and realized in the moment and then creating that realization and then projecting that out into the world. And that's what our tours are, you know? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, as you started to come into the band, cause I mean, from what I understand, you basically just reached out to Jared, right? Is that the other band? Member? Uh, Jonah, Jonah's the Jonah, other guitar player. Yeah. Yeah. No worries. So you you basically just reached out to him and kind of like sort of, you know, injected yourself by like, Hey, like, you know, I, I think this can be a thing. Like, you know, I, I know that you've documented it in other interviews, but um, you know, I guess in your, in your head, like how, I guess what motivated you to do that? Where is it just like, I'd really like this band and I think it should exist. Well, at the time, both Jonah and I were in between bands. We were both in bands that were trying to tour and trying to do stuff and both just fell apart. So we had the drive still there, if that makes sense. Like we still wanted it really bad. And I was at a point in my life where I had graduated college uh, and I was teaching full time, but I, I didn't really want to do that anymore. So when I saw, you know, this demo come up, which Jonah didn't put his name on at all. That was kind of not really his style. And that was not the style of Risk Me Razor. It wasn't supposed to be kind of a, like, it was definitely supposed to be a one man screamo project in the beginning. And it was supposed to have a, a much more mysterious vibe, but I knew it was him just based on, you know, kind of how he was wording everything. So I messaged him about it and, uh, yeah, our, our discussions were great. We had really good, uh, really good dialogue about what we wanted out of, uh, music in general and then what uh, what was happening simultaneously is that wrist meat razor was getting a lot of attention on the internet uh in really low-key ways like it, it was happening through facebook groups that we were both a part of it was happening uh with friends that we both knew at the same time they were hyping it up at the uh without really knowing what it was and so it became a thing where we both kind of saw it happening at the same time in real time and, and felt like this was a good, a good move to actually build this and make this a thing. And I also felt like on a personal level, aside from Jonah, I thought that there was like a lot of, uh, a lot to, uh, grab attention with 
wrist meat razor and the lyrics and the name and the imagery and like all of it was very attention grabbing and I liked it a lot and uh, saw a lot of potential in it. And so it, it worked out very quickly, thankfully. Like there, there really wasn't too much lag between the day he dropped the demo, the day I messaged him about the demo, which was uh, the day after or the same day. And then once we started writing what became the first two uh, EPs, the first two seven inches, um, that was only about a month. <laughs> it all happened right away. That's amazing. I just really like that idea too of you guys existing in the same ecosystem and then just noticing those little breadcrumbs being spread out. Cause I mean, it's the same idea as like when you first start to play shows and see like, Oh my gosh, there's one person singing lawn. That's not our friend. Like that's insane. It's like, it, you, that was just a, a same version of it, except obviously on the internet. So that's interesting that you guys were able to be like, you, you both recognize it at the same time. It's really cool. Yeah, no, it's a, it's very much a uh, 21st century kind of experience that I, I don't think could have ever happened in any other time period, but this one, we were, we were very fortunate, but then on the same, at the same time, I, I don't think it was necessarily a coincidence or even some sort of like fateful thing. I think it was just kind of the, uh, the corresponding events of what happened. I mean, we, we, we worked at the same time and, uh, Jonah was a, was a, is a person still today that writes music a lot and he really enjoys writing and playing. And I I always look up to people like that. And I think that musicians that kind of just do it because they enjoy writing, it'll just happen. It just kind of comes together when it comes together. And it's, it's just always, a possibility and with him with him and how he did his projects he also is a graphic artist and uh i had worked with him with that before too so it it was like not a coincidence at all that i saw this and that it was all kind of just happening and you know those are those are the kind of uh the kind of 21st century uh connections that almost seem uh undeniable and uh inevitable at this point yeah it's and it's funny because then, you know, five to 10 years, like that notion of what you guys did, you know, how you came together is going to be like, oh, that seems old fashioned in the same way that, that like, you know, people, people listing flyers in record stores where it's just like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, was, People did that. It's like, yeah, that's how people connected. But exactly. Well, and it's uh, interesting, too, because it's I mean, when I think back to how I like got into Molotov Solution it was as easy as like I went to high school with the singer and that was how I got in the band. Like I, I went to high school with the singer. He would bring me to shows and uh, they needed a bass player. And that's, you know, but that kind of situation is becoming more and more rare when it comes to starting bands. And that's, you know, it's weird. It's true. And I think a lot of the um, regionality that, uh, you know, you and I experienced like, as you could kind of like distinctly point out to certain bands being from certain areas of the country, like clearly, you know, the internet has leveled that playing field where you can't listen to like, there is no way that anybody could listen to wrist meets razor and be like, Hey, Oh yeah, these guys are from uh, Michigan. You know, it's like, you just wouldn't be able to do that. And uh, you know, even though there is like that 
old man in the porch notion of like, oh, I missed that idea. But it's also really cool to have it just be like, yeah, you can be from anywhere. So it's like creative people can get together at any point in their lives and be able to put something out that's really compelling. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think it was it was a lot easier for us to make the evolutions that we did being that we didn't live in the same city. It made it a lot easier to conceptualize it from afar. And then when we got together, you know, do the thing that we were conceptualizing, you know, it's, it's harder when you're in a room with someone every single day practicing to actually see the forest from the trees, you know? Sure. And there does get that level of excitement when, you know, you guys do get to a a spot where you're either practicing, rehearsing, recording. It's like, there's that you're, feeding off of the each other's energy because you're excited to be in the same room because it's not the routine yeah and so when you started to i I guess you know play shows initially as you know under this this band and start to experience that um and i know you'd obviously toured previously with you know molotov and Folsom and stuff like that did you take to touring right away or was that something that you kind of you know, had to learn how to like. No, I, I always really, really enjoyed touring. It was, it was, uh, I think, a major uh, driving force in creating Risk Meat Razor because, again, like Jonah and I had gotten a taste of touring and then had it kind of ripped from us, if that makes sense. Like it was completely taken from us and we were like, well, we still have a lot more, you know, to do. There's still a lot more to, to achieve on the road. And so, um, originally the band, it was one of those situations where it was like, well, you know, maybe it won't tour, maybe it'll just break up, but at least we could do maybe one tour. Maybe we could play just one fest. And so that was the plan. The plan was going to be like, well, let's play this one fest and see how it goes. And, uh, we did that and the reaction was great. And we were like, well, maybe we can do one or two other tours and see how those go. And those also went great. So it just kind of it felt really natural to continue going. Um, but no, I, I, it was always something I, I've, I've wanted to do. I've wanted to tour and I, I like traveling a lot. And, uh, all of us do. We're, we're a band of, pe- of people that uh, just love to travel and love to see new things and love to play shows. So uh, playing out and doing long tours and doing stuff with, uh, with our friends just to, just to get on the road is, is important to us just as much as, you know, uh, you know, making music and uh, creating stuff that is going to resonate with everyone. Sure. Um, And as you guys, you know, started to sort of undertake, you know, you being a more quote unquote real serious band or whatever, and, you know, signing with prosthetic and putting out records and, you know, getting management and booking agents and all that stuff. um, Did that all feel kind of part of the logical process or was that something that you had to kind of, you know, be like, Oh, I got to relinquish a little control in order for someone that knows what they're doing to help us with it. Or how how did that kind of, um, I guess, transpire for you guys? Yeah, I, I think to a certain extent, it, it kind of fits into the whole like, we can only do so much on our own. And it's hard to come to that point, especially when you grow up in circles of like, DIY, getting it done on your own without ever having, you know, outside help. So it got to a point where there was no other way to really do it. And, uh, and continue to grow the band the way that we wanted to grow it without you know, reaching out to other people, but ultimately still there's, we, I think as opposed to some of our peers, we, we still have a lot of 
we still have a lot of say in what we do and how we're perceived and stuff like that. Because the band really is um, a, a bit of an art project at this point as well, where it's we we've created something and we that we have a very specific vision on how it gets carried out, and uh, the goal is definitely to do justice to it. Right. Yeah. Especially because like, even though, you know, and I'm sure you guys have had discussions and contemplated about it, like the collision of art and commerce is never um, easy and clean, but it's something that, you know, is necessary for you to, you know, participate and obviously spread your art farther than, you know, just the confines of your own city or whatever. Um, You know, and, and it sounds like, I mean, clearly you're comfortable with it because you've enlisted, you know, the help of all of these outside people. Um, you know, so how do you guys, uh, I guess, kind of reckon with that where it's like, okay, we have to do these things in order to exist in a music industry, but then we also are reclaiming the control by doing these things on this side of the, you know, creative spectrum or, you know, and what I saying, is that holding any relevance to you? Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I, I know what you're, what you're getting at. Um, uh, there is to a certain extent a bit of organized chaos in that whole thing like it it's a little bit about what kind of falls our way but then it's also about you know what we feel uh is going to do justice to what we do like if uh if you have a uh if you have a tour and you want to pay us a lot of money we'll consider it but if it's a, something that really isn't going to benefit us then we might you know we might think twice about it um but with all of that said there's like a huge kind of aspect to it that you know i never thought about growing up and i don't think any of the other guys really ever thought about and it's the idea of getting to new audiences by any means necessary and i that's a factor that we've never thought about before but now has become a very real looming possibility so things that maybe we would have turned down a year ago now we're now we consider as a very serious possibility regardless of how it's going to be perceived and we're very you know well aware that it would probably be perceived poorly by our peers and by you know some of our fans maybe and and some of the people that you know have liked this band in the past Uh, but at the end of the day i i think we find a lot of solace in uh, doing justice to what uh we feel and how we think the band should be perceived and how the band uh, is kind of conceptually put together. So I I think at the end of the day, as long as we feel good about it, it's going to be fine for us. It'll work out the way it works out, you know? Yeah, sure. Right. It's like you're comfortable with the decisions and then hopefully the, you know, the people who enjoy the art will follow along with that process as opposed to like, you know, because the concept of quote unquote selling out now it like doesn't even exist you know (laughs) it's like i mean selling out yes to a certain extent where it's just like oh cool you know you're you're working with this stupid brand just to you know be a hashtag influencer or whatever like people see through that but you know like the idea of a a, you know a band song getting played in a commercial you know that was like suicide 15 years ago or whatever and now it's like that's fine yeah no now if you appeared in a movie or a commercial or something people would flip out on the internet and talk about how cool it was you know that you'd be able to get that and it wasn't like that at all it really wasn't um and it's it's funny too because i feel like that kind of thing is um is awarded to certain bands more so than it is other bands and uh 
Wrist Me Razor is a band that has uh, has such a uh, such a conflicting kind of opinion following it that um, I, some some of the things that I think other bands could do that people would think were cool if we did it it might look corny or lame but uh, you know I, that 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 kind of opinion has never affected anything I've ever done so right exactly it doesn't concern you. Um, the, the last thing I wanted to hit on was the, uh, you know, the idea of like you mentioned with the, uh, you know, aesthetics and the way that the, the band is presented, like clearly there's thought and put, put into it in regards to your presentation, how you guys look, you know, how you dress, like it's a, it's a cohesive thing as opposed to let's just wear, you know, double XL shirts on stage and that's it, you know, um, how, you know, and I know that that has evolved with you guys over time. So, you know, how, how do people, I guess, sort of generally speaking, kind of react to the, you know, evolutions in the way that you guys are kind of presenting yourself, you know, what you're doing on this record definitely varies, uh, drastically aesthetically, or maybe not drastically, but it varies from what you did previously. Um, so how do you, know, how's that kind of like feedback circled around you guys? Um, you know, it's tough too. I, I think the feedback for what we do um, very much is specific to the person that's checking it out. We, uh, you know, I, it's interesting cause I feel like now I can really see what a lot of the bands in the nineties and the early two thousands kind of were experiencing at the time, um, with, you know, certain purists on both sides of the aisle kind of, uh, judging them for, you know, trying to take chances and dress certain ways and that whole thing. Uh, for me, this is all real natural. Like I dress this way all the time. And so the aesthetic isn't something that we're, it's not an act. It's not something we're just putting on for fun or for like some sort of weird, you know, kind of like exploitive like thing where we're trying to like get into the goth market or something like that. You know what I mean? But, yeah, um, yeah. but I think that there are certain people that don't want to take the band seriously because of aspects like that. Um, but for, for like my interest, I don't really care if, you know, what someone would, would think if they saw us and decided that they thought we weren't, you know, cool enough to listen to. Um, the evolution of the, the look is, is again, part of the whole overall concept is something that we were really trying to do as far as like where we wanted to take the band. And there's been a lot of plans on what we wanted to do with this band for, years now and this is uh, one of the steps that we wanted we've wanted to kind of grow into and i think we did it in a way that does justice to what we've been before and what we're going to be in the future and it's you know it's just the uh the natural thing i i don't i wouldn't want to give it too much of a of a title if that makes sense i wouldn't want to like say you know use words like like goth or something like that as far as like what we do and i know the word scene gets thrown around a lot for us too and it's not you know it's just not something that we are necessarily influenced by we're influenced by ourselves and that's what we do yeah sure no i understand you guys are single-handedly trying to resurrect hot topic i get it (laughs) (laughs) i i mean the internet would love to hear that. So I'll, I'll, I'll agree to whatever, if, if that makes you happy, if, uh, honestly, and that, that is how I feel too. Like if calling us a scene band is what's going to like make you feel more endeared to us, uh, I'm not offended by it. If we're reviving scene music in your eyes, then that, then that's what we're doing. If we're creating like kind of 
18 visions, uh, bleeding through like goth metal core in your eyes, then that's what we're doing. Like, it's not really for me to judge, you know, something like that. Yeah, no, it's true. Because I mean, the idea is once you put art out in the world, like you clearly don't control it anymore. Like whatever people and whatever people latch on to for you guys, whether it's the, uh, you know, the looks, the visuals, the, um, you know, the sound, it doesn't matter what people identify with as long as they are joining with you on your journey. And that's, I think what the compelling thing is when you are, when you kind of do throw all of these things at a person, it's this, you know, this, this thought process that like, Hey, what, however you're here, we welcome you. Right. Exactly. And and I mean, naturally we definitely, uh, we definitely um, tend to trend more on the dark side of, things especially when it comes to the aesthetic and then the concepts of the record and then kind of just my you know internal being as a as a human like uh, that's kind of where i go so when people of a similar ilk kind of see that as well and they relate to that you know i have a hard time you know judging them for that because clearly we're on the same path you know to varying extents yeah oh absolutely super cool well, Justin, thank you so much for letting me ping pong around your brain and pull out all these random, uh, random talking points. But uh, yeah, I just, uh, you know, uh, like your music and I appreciate you sharing that time with me. No, th- definitely. Thank you, man. Everyone, uh, everyone's been very stoked on this one. Our manager is a big fan of uh, big fan of the podcast and Taken too. So he's real stoked on this one. And like, same with me. So. Okay, that was Justin. Thank you very much for him for coming on the show. And of course, thank you to his PR dude, Mike, who is always a good guy and bringing me cool ideas for the show. You also need to check out their record, which is called Replica of a Strange Love. Like I said, just came out on Prosthetic about, I don't know, like four or five months ago, but really good record. And I encourage you to check it out next week is another exciting discussion of people involved in independent music. This one is an old friend, uh, a guy who I hadn't spoken to in 15-plus years. Uh, His name is Eric Ratzensperger. Ratzensperger? I think that's how it goes. He plays drums in Jerome's Dream. And for those of you that uh, don't know Jerome's Dream, well, first of all, check it out, because you should. And uh, second of all, uh, Jerome's Dream is just gearing up for re-releasing some of their old material. Uh, They released a record, I want to say 2019 or something like that, which is really, really good. Um, And uh, yeah, I just just really like Jerome's Dream. And Eric is a good dude, so I wanted to have him on. And that's what we did. So until next week, please be safe, everybody.